it was pretty difficult. Uh, I think that's just the nature of the, the sport. Uh, you could be high one day and then low another, and I just try to enjoy every moment of it. Welcome to the ShakeOut Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Van Buskirk. Marco Arop is arguably one of the most accomplished mid-distance runners in Canadian history. He's only 22 years old, but he's already achieved more than most track athletes can dream of in an entire career. He's a Pan Am Games gold medalist, a world championship finalist, and was an NCAA standout at Mississippi State before going pro in 2019. Since then, he's become a five-time Diamond League podium finisher and competed in this summer's Tokyo Olympics, placing seventh in his semifinal. But Marco hasn't been without his share of challenges, both on and off the track. Dustin, though, very aggressive indeed. Has he gone too early? And here comes Arop as well onto the shoulder. Dustin, lights out, looking as though he's straining a little bit. A little bit of a clip there. Elliot Giles having to be careful. Now career with that rocking and rolling style. But Arop, the Canadian, is well clear here. This is a turn-up for the books. The Canadians in pursuit. Rotic and career for the line on the dip. No doubt at all about the winner, Arup. And all credit to the 22-year-old from Canada who failed to make the final in Tokyo and is a winner here in Eugene. 144-51, and he left the, the, uh, the two Kenyans trailing in his wake. Well, what you just heard was footage from earlier this summer in the final seconds of the men's 800 meters at the prestigious Prefontaine Classic, where Canadian mid-distance superstar Marco Arop stormed to the first of two Diamond League victories. Hello, Marco. How did I do with the last name there? That was perfect. <laughs> yeah, we were just chatting about how often poor Marco's name is mispronounced. And uh, as I, I was telling him, as someone who frequently has had my name mispronounced, it, it matters when we say things correctly. So, Mr. Arop, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for, for inviting me. You're joining us today from Starkville, Mississippi, I believe. Yes. Home of Mississippi State, which is, of course, your alma mater and where your coaches and all of your former and current teammates, I guess, as well. How are things going in Mississippi? Uh, things are great here. The weather is almost perfect, <laughs> as close to perfect as it can get. Uh, it's just nice to be surrounded by the group of teammates, all like-minded individuals that, that push me to be great. This is where not all started, but this is um, where I've made some of the biggest improvements in my in my career. So it's nice to be back. I should have said this right away, but congratulations on an absolutely incredible year. It was it's been so fun to watch your success both on my TV screen, but then also to get to travel with you a little bit through the the back half of the season and see you in person, you know, killing it at all these diamond leagues across the world. It's been about five weeks since the end of that 2021 racing season. And I'm wondering how the last month or so have been. How did you kind of, what did you do in your downtime? How have you been recovering? Are you back to training? How are things going? Uh, yeah. So I went back to, um, to Edmonton uh, for a few weeks just to spend time with family, see my teammates back home and my coach, of course, Ron. Um, so I went back there. Uh, most of it was just doing nothing, <laughs> like being at home for a little while. I was playing nurse uh, for my younger brother. He, he had a bit of an, an injury and uh, I was just at home, just taking care of him. So it was, it was a nice change of nice change of scenery, nice change of um, not going out doing something every day. Um, but yeah, and then I went to Vancouver for a couple of weeks, did some physio with uh, Mary Lou, uh, massage therapy with Garfield and uh, actually worked on some 
mechanics stuff with uh, with Wilbur. So those three have been really awesome. And uh, now I'm back down in Mississippi after, I guess it's five weeks. It feels like it's gone by in, in such a short period of time. That's awesome. So those three people that you mentioned, of course, are like all-star IST members for Team Canada, just some of the best in the, in the industry. You, you can't, it doesn't get better than that. Well, and you also, you're a smart guy because you went back to Alberta in like early September, and then you've just progressively moved to warmer and warmer places as it's gotten colder and colder. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the, it's probably one of the hardest things about being here is hearing from my family how cold it's getting in Edmonton and I don't even want to show them the the temperature down here. But yeah, I'd love to go back um, at some point for Christmas, even no matter how cold it gets. Well, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, as I think we all have, what this year has meant. I think that the downtime from training and racing is also really important in terms of having the time to reflect on how the year went, what the season, you know, meant to all of us, especially given how challenging this year was. What have been some of your biggest reflections as you've sort of been thinking back on on the year over the last five weeks? Uh, overall, I thought it was a great season. We, we accomplished a lot of our goals. Um, like getting to the Olympics healthy, setting personal records, winning Diamond League races. Um, so in that sense, it was it was almost as good as we could have hoped for. Uh, which I just I think the two most important races for me were the ones that I fell short in, and I think that was sort of a bittersweet uh, takeaway from it. Uh, but I don't I don't regret any any decisions I've made. I think I think I would, if if I could do it all over again, I, I probably would. Um, because in those in those losses, I learned some valuable lessons, and uh, I think that's what's really going to help me moving forward. I think I know what one of them is, but maybe you can tell us what the two races are that you're referring to that you saw as sort of disappointing. Yeah, so the first was the semifinal in Tokyo uh, at the Olympics. I think set my target for for gold, uh, or at least win a medal. <laughs> I think that was definitely in reach. All everything leading up to to the games uh, sort of made that possible. Um, but of course, uh, just because you're in the greatest shape of your life doesn't mean that you're always going to perform at your best. Uh, I think part of it is also like the mental aspect, being prepared, going into races and uh, having a backup plan and that sort of thing. That was a lesson. Um, uh, going into the race with one plan wasn't the best idea. And then the second race of the season, or I guess the second race that I thought was an uh, important race other than, than at the games was the Diamond League final. It felt really great to get a couple wins, um, back-to-back wins. That was really awesome. I think that that was just what I needed to get my confidence back after the games. So going into the final, I felt like uh, sort of like Tokyo, like the confidence was there. I felt like I had everything in my power to to win uh, a Diamond League trophy. But then again, it was it was sort of the same lesson from Tokyo, but just coming in from a different angle. Um, so this time it was instead of front running, which I wanted to do, I ended up second guessing myself and staying in the middle, uh, staying in second or so and, and not not being able to make the move when, when the opportunity arose. So yeah, those were two two very important lessons that I, I uh, or two very important races that I, that I can learn important lessons from. So I want to go back a little bit to before the Olympics, because I think probably what, you know, most of us, how most of us see the year is there's the pre-Olympic season, right? There's the qualification process, then there's the actual games, and then there's the post-Olympic season. 
and it makes for a long year and it makes for kind of three distinct phases. And I would say, you know, you talked about the disappointment in Tokyo and we'll get to that specifically in a moment, but you bookended that the the start of the season and the, and the back half of the season were pretty extraordinary. I mean, you were a podium finisher in every diamond league that you competed in, except for that diamond league final where you were fourth, which is still a remarkable result. Uh, you set your personal best in, I believe, the Monaco Diamond League early on this year, which was only six hundredths of a second off of that Canadian national record. I mean, what a year to have. Like Every commentator was just talking about how consistent you are, how well you perform, how strong you are up at the front. You talked about front running. You did a lot of that. So I'd love if we could spend a little bit of time just kind of talking about each of those three phases of the year. Going back to the beginning, because of course, like with the postponement of the games and COVID throwing a wrench and everything, the Canadian trials sort of being canceled and then brought back on in this weird sort of hybrid form. How did you feel going into this year? And then how did things feel as the season started getting rolling and you realized like how strong you were? Yeah, I, I guess I can uh, start from last last year, 2020. Uh, it was a pretty interesting start to my, I guess, professional career. Um, so I uh, just signed in January and uh, I was looking to, to have a great spring training uh, training block leading into into the Tokyo Olympics. And I had gone home from for spring break and that was when the pandemic started. And so that was a little difficult getting to train. Like I, I, I know most people had uh, the same issues, not being able to get into facilities. So um, I, like most people, found alternate methods like uh, training outside, like finding uh, my coach found some really good hills. Um, we had to jump a few fences just to run on a track. And then uh, as well as uh, finding an uncurved uh, treadmill to trade on for, for most of the late winter, early spring, uh, when it was too cold to run outside. Uh, so in that phase of training, I felt like we had done just enough to maintain our fitness. And thankfully, there were, there were a few meets um, still happening that year that I was able to get into. So it, it was, I don't want to say difficult for me, but it was different um, not, not having the games last year. Uh, but I, I think I was sort of in the fortunate position where uh, an extra year actually helped me prepare even, even more. Um, so yeah, leading into this, this season, we had a really great uh, fall training and our base season. Uh, I felt like we had, we had improved so much on the aerobic, on the aerobic side I was able to run a mile and at K in a pretty great time. I think I, I ran a sub four mile indoors and that was a huge, huge accomplishment for me because I, I never looked at myself as a strength base runner. So yeah, going into the season, I felt really prepared uh, for just about anything. Um, first race was actually in here in my backyard at, in Mississippi state. So uh, I was supposed to be pacing 600 meters of an 800 for some of the 800 guys here. And, coach told me if I was feeling good, I might as well just finish. Um, so running up to 600 and then deciding at that moment to finish the race, I, I ended up running a 144. And I think that was a sign of things to come later on in the season. So that was, that was really exciting. So I knew going into the, uh, uh that early diamond league races that, that the fitness was there. All I had to do was work on race tactics and gain my confidence to front run it. Marco's got a lot of reason to feel confident. He is known for that front-running tactic, something that very few athletes are brave enough to try. And while it's historically worked really well for him, 
he has had to learn to trust his ability to let someone else control the race, then kick late. That's exactly what he did in Eugene at the pre-classic, waiting till the last 100 meters to seize the lead. He won that race, his first Diamond League victory, by a wide margin, beating the Olympic gold and silver medalists in the process. Um, so I, I think I just have to be comfortable enough to run in, in all scenarios and all situations. But yeah, I think there were three distinct phases where I was building confidence. And then at Tokyo, it was there. That semifinal race sort of, I don't want to say shot me down, but uh, I realized there was still a long way to go. And then coming back at the end of the season, there was um, a rebuilding phase. Did you go into Tokyo? I mean, you talked about the confidence building early on. And again, you had some pretty great opportunities to do that. Like the results really spoke for themselves. You were progressing every time you stepped on the track. To go into your first Olympic Games and put it out there that, you know, I, I'm here to do great things. I'm here to win a medal. I believe I'm capable of that. I believe I'm capable of even being the best in the world at this championship. I mean, those are big goals, especially to put out there publicly. How did you feel going into your races? Because the the heat, you actually won and you you did it in your traditional fashion. You led it wire to wire. You looked incredible. You know, you talked in your post-race interview about feeling really good, really feeling really strong. And then that semi came around. And I know that it was, again, a bit disappointing because you faded to seventh in that semi and didn't advance to the final. Maybe you can talk us through kind of, because that's a pretty big high. And then and then I would imagine a bit of a valley after. Can you tell us about like what went on in Tokyo? Yeah, it was pretty funny. Um, just the way it played out because I, I felt like I was, I had done everything right up until that point. Uh, so going into the first round, I I was really confident, maybe a little overconfident in my in my abilities. Uh, so we had a race plan, and that was just to go up front, control the race, and win it from start to finish. And I did exactly that. I guess the only part of the race where it was a little shaky was around 300, where I sort of stumbled. But other than that, it was it went exactly to plan. So we put that behind us, and now the focus was on the semifinals. One thing I never really wanted. Uh, to do was assume that I would make the finals. Um, and of course, and I knew that I'd have to take each race as it, as if it were the final. Uh, so going into the semifinal, I, I try to look back and think maybe it could have been a bit of overconfidence. Maybe it was um, me not being confident enough to, to, to change the race plan. And I'm not usually one to make excuses. So I try to find what I could have improved on. Uh, I think uh, one thing that I, did notice going into the semifinal was I didn't feel as strong or I didn't feel as uh, as prepared going into the semifinal as I did into the first round. Uh, so maybe changing the tactics would have been would have been the best idea. And also the thing was I, I sort of gotten up way too fast in the first two hundred, telling myself that I have to take the lead if I wanna if I wanna win the race. And I think that was where I made a big mistake. Uh, and it really paid. Like I paid for it in in the last hundred. Yeah, I just remember in that moment, uh, actually, it's funny going from the call room to the start line, uh, just going back and forth in my mind, whether I should uh, sit back on in this race and let someone else take the lead. But then I was thinking that's not the race plan. The race plan was to, was to go out and, and win it from the front. And I think it's just that indecisiveness there. That's where I really have to have to improve on uh, making a decision and sticking with it. Um, because at the end of the day, I'm the one racing and, and no matter what race plan I'd made before the race, 
things change. Um, I've got to be open to different race strategies. Uh, if someone else decides to take it out, I don't always have to go with them. Um, and yeah, that was that was the biggest lesson I learned there. And yeah, it was it was pretty difficult going from really high after the first round, um, seeing how well it turned out, and then going into the semifinal and then being taught a hard lesson. But uh, I think that's just the nature of the the sport. Uh, you could be high one day and then low another, and uh, and just try to enjoy every moment of it. So whatever frustration or disappointment you might have felt from Tokyo, you clearly used it in a positive way because you had, like we said, just this tremendous post-Olympic season. You won the Prefontaine Classic and the Lausanne Diamond League. You went on to become third in the Paris Diamond League only two days after Lausanne, and you ran it out the year with that fourth place finish uh, at the Diamond League final in Zurich. And in the process, you routinely beat the men who had not only made that Olympic final, but all of the medalists at various points. You're a young guy. I mean, you're only 22. You've not been in this sport all that long, and, and we'll get into that in, in a moment. But you talked a lot about the lessons learned this year, and, and you're learning so many of those out of necessity just with every race. How did you turn things around mentally and emotionally after you know the letdown from the Olympics to come back and have this unbelievable post-Olympic success? Uh, yeah, so I guess I got this from uh, my coach here. He would always say, like you've got to find that uh, that window after a bad performance. You could be you, you're obviously going to be frustrated. The most important thing is not letting that carry over and in, into the next phase. Uh, so I give myself. I know some people it, it varies uh, between like depending on on how you take things. It could be a few minutes. It could be a whole day. It could be a week. Like, but I, I try not to like try to keep that phase as short as possible. Um, so going from literally the, like right after the, um, the change room and then going out to the warm up track to see my coach. So in that period, I'd sort of, I think I was just in my head going over like what happened, what went wrong? Like, why did I run the way that I did? And then by the time I see my coach, I sort of let out all that frustration and um, I was just ready to move on. Uh, Cause at the end of the day, you can't, you can't carry these these things with you. It's it's only going to cause just it's just going to make me miserable. So it's better to just leave it behind and not let not let that bother me. I mean, I'm I'm still having fun even though I'm not winning every race. It's still a part of the uh, it's still a part of the process. And I think I'm just blessed to even be in the position to be able to 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 have a career like this, to be able to run for like for a living. That's uh, the dream most people would wish for and yeah regardless of wins or losses I, I think the important thing is just being able to move on knowing that I, I tried my best and that is such a mature perspective I think that's something that often takes athletes like a whole career to develop so I think you're pretty far ahead of the curve that way I, I know that most people would have you know a difficult time being able to like process that see it for what it was and then move on in a really positive way, which obviously is something you were able to do. And on that note, I mean, not just your approach to the sport, but the way that you run, you run with a lot of maturity and poise, again, particularly given that you're actually really quite new to this sport. And I know you didn't start even seriously training uh, for track until I think you were 17, which was five short years ago. Tell, take us back a bit and tell us about how you discovered your love for track and field, because I, I understand that it wasn't your first sport love. It's funny. I, I I did do a little bit of running and in, uh, in elementary and 
some in junior high, but I never really stuck to it. Um, so I knew that was always like, uh, I, I knew I had the talent for it uh, early on, but my, my main sport was basketball for many years. And like every year in high school, people would tell me you should try running track. And I would always just play it off like, uh, yeah, maybe next year, maybe next year. And then it came to the point where there was no next year. It was my final year of high school. And um, yeah, I just decided why not do it for fun. And that's just sort of been my mentality ever since I started. That was uh, just over five years ago in 2016. And it's it's funny because I didn't know anything about track uh, then. I just like jumped into the sport and I show up to the tryouts and basically just had to write on a piece of paper which events you wanted to do. So um, knowing that I had done a bit of cross country early in my like elementary years, uh, I just signed up for the 800, 1500 and 3000. Just thinking like, yeah, I'm an endurance runner. And my coach thought that was pretty funny. And he said, maybe you should try swapping the 3000 for a 400. So I was a pretty big muscular guy. Probably difficult to run a 3000. <laughs> well, also Marco, I just got to say, like, I think at that age, there's very few kids who like, say, oh, I want to do like the 15 and the 3000. Usually it's like, throw me in the one and the two, right? Like that's, that's the event everyone wants to do. So that was, that was pretty impressive self-selection, I will say. It is. It's, it's funny. I, I, most people would uh, associate track with like hundred meters or short sprints. And mine was sort of the opposite. I, I think of like the 10,000 or cross country. Yeah. So I, I, that's one reason why, and I hate to say this, there's one reason why I avoided running for many years because I couldn't, I couldn't stand running cross country. Um, but I knew I was, I was pretty good at it. Um, it just, it just hurt and it takes a lot of mental toughness. Uh, but yeah, I was, I was prepared for that. I was prepared to do a lot of running at my first track meet. I'm actually glad uh, the order events went like 400, 815. So I was able to be freshest for the 400. And um, it was after that race where I met my, my coach, Ron, Ron Thompson. So I'd ran like 51 seconds in, in the open four and then went on to run the eight, I think maybe an hour and a half later and ran like 204. And then the 15, I can't even remember what I ran for the 15. All I remember was thinking, I'm never doing this again. Uh, it is just maybe two laps too many. <laughs> Well, especially as your third event of the day, like that's, that's a tall ask for anyone. That, that might've played a, a pretty big factor. Uh, yeah. That might've been a factor. So you have this success and then of course you, you go on to have some pretty quick, like junior level success um, at the national international level. And then you got recruited to Mississippi state, which is of course also the alma mater of current Canadian record holder, Brandon McBride. Did him going there play any role in, in your decision to attend Mississippi state? Absolutely. Yeah. I'd known of Brandon from that first year I started doing track. I knew he was the best 800 meter runner in Canada and hearing that his coach from Mississippi had an interest in me that, that, that just meant a whole lot to me. And um, I knew that he'd been successful here and I didn't really think um, I would be in the position to be uh, competing in the U S or uh, going to school in, in the States and competing in the NCAA. So the moment I heard that I, I, I accepted it, 
your coaches have all spoken so highly of you. And then of course, Coach Woods, who is your Mississippi State coach, um, has just, you know, talked about what a natural talent you are and that you were really built for running. I got to ask though, because you have talked about having aspirations of being in the NBA. I know you're, you've only attended one Olympics so far in track, um, but you've fit in a whole lot of success outside of just the Olympics. Do you think you made the right decision? Are you okay with being, you know, an Olympic track athlete instead of an NBA star? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think that was, this is definitely the way to go. Marco was born in Sudan and his family fled the Sudanese civil war when he was only three years old. They lived for a time in Egypt before making the journey to Canada and finally settling in Edmonton. Growing up, it was pretty interesting because uh, being a kid, Everything seemed so, it seemed so nice. I, I remember, I have memories of living in Egypt, not so much from Sudan, I was pretty young then. Um, but we were in Egypt for about two, two years before coming to Canada. And uh, it was me and my three brothers. Uh, and I think my parents did a lot to, to protect us from, from the upside, from everything that was going on. So uh, coming here to Canada, it was, everything seemed different, but I, we still had that sense of family. Um, yeah, they, they sacrificed a lot uh, for us. And I, I think there was one thing that I that me and my brothers always knew growing up was that no matter how bad things may seem here, it could be a whole lot worse. And um, that really just taught us to be grateful for everything, for everything we have. And uh, I try to have fun in everything that I do and try to be grateful at all times. But at the end of the day, I, I really want to do this for them and, and make sure that I'm paying them back by being the best that I can be in, in whatever I do. That's the least I could do for them. Have you been to Sudan since? Uh, I haven't. Actually, no one in my immediate family has gone back since, but um, we're planning on getting my mom to go back and visit her family for the first time in 20 years. Uh, so she'll be traveling back next month. Uh, hopefully we'll get my dad there soon, soon as well. Do you have other family in Canada? Um, we've got a lot of like distant relatives. Um, uh, there's a pretty large like uh, Sudanese community in Edmonton and Saskatoon, and well, just just about everywhere in the world. Um, so yeah, everywhere we go, we've we've got relatives. Well, I'm glad to hear that your mom is able to go home and visit, and I hope that you're all able to do that really soon as well. We talked a bit about how your experience with Mississippi State was really pivotal to your development. I know you're there now. We talked about your relationship with Brandon and with Coach Woods. But speaking of Brandon, you are only six one hundredths of a second off of his Canadian record. You must have your eye on it. How are you feeling about uh, your approach to next year um, with the World Championships, the Commonwealth Games, of course, a whole new season of Diamond League racing and about getting after that Canadian record? Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, I mean, I, Brandon is someone I look up to. Uh, I've looked up to him for many years now, and he's, he's, he's been a really great friend and mentor. And I, I think we have this really great competitive rivalry where um, I want to see him be the best he can be. And uh, I, I'm sure he feels the same way about me. So it, it's just nice to have someone like that in, in my corner. And like, I, as much as I, as I want to go for that record, I know he's, he's going to come back and and challenges as well. So it'll be really exciting um, having the two two best Canadian 800 meter runners going for that record. It's always awesome seeing that because obviously like having 
competition who's close to you and pushes you just keeps elevating that level, right? And I think for a long time, I don't know how much of a connection you have with Gary Reed, who is the longtime Canadian record holder in the 800. Um, but he's talked about how, you know, he was kind of in a class of his own. He had lots of other strong mid-distance men around him, but not anyone who was necessarily constantly challenging him for that record. Um, do you, have you talked much with Gary? I've never met Gary Reed. I've heard, heard a lot about him. Uh, it'd be awesome to meet him one day. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm sure that'll happen. I know he's a big fan of yours, but um, that's great that you have, yeah, this kind of friendly rivalry with Brandon and can continue to push each other to higher, higher levels. You said that you've just started getting back into training. Are you feeling healthy and fit and excited? How are you feeling about the fall? I'm feeling really excited. Uh, I know it's still a long way to go. So really just trying to get back into the mentality of taking it one day at a time. Like I just have a a slight irritation in my foot, left foot. So I'll be taking it easy for the next couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, I'm just excited. Uh, one thing I really like is having fun in the process. So just showing up every day, seeing the guys, seeing smiles and everyone's having fun, even, even as brutal as training can be, just making it as light as possible. Um, that's, that's one thing I love about it. Well, it, it shows in, in your performances and in the way that you speak about the sport. We're so proud to have you on Team Canada. So thrilled for all of the success you had this year. And Marco, we wish you the very best moving forward. Can't wait to have you back on maybe this time next year to recount another amazing season. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you to Marco for sharing his story with us today. And thank you listeners for tuning in. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ShakeOut Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. And if you're enjoying our content, please consider leaving us a review. We hope you're all continuing to stay healthy and run strong, and we'll chat again soon.